But my intuition is that a deer is going to eat a soybean mostly based on where it is. So they like soybeans. It can be any kind of soybean, but if it's on the field edge, they're going to go for that first. Even if it's not like their favorite forage variety with higher sugar content, they're going to eat a, a conventional bean if it's on the field edge, just because they prefer to be on that field edge and they're going to come out and start grazing immediately. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Luke McCauley, a wildlife management specialist with the University of Maryland, about some interesting research he's been conducting on forage soybeans. And while Luke's primary focus is on determining if the the different forage soybean varieties he's testing can work as a buffer to, to minimize deer damage to production soybeans, but much of what he's learned is great information for us, us deer hunters and food plotters as well. Um, Luke dives into his background, his, his soybean research, uh, what he's learned about some of the different varieties he's testing as far as which produce the most forage, which produce the most beans, and, and just a whole lot more. So if you're a food plotter, uh, be sure to stick around for this one. Uh, you're definitely going to enjoy it. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our new NDA sponsor, BOG. Uh, Bog is a lifestyle and hunting gear brand that manufactures a variety of great hunting equipment, uh, including high-quality shooting rests and shooting sticks, tripods, bipods, and monopods, hunting blinds, chairs, and and a lot more. So uh, Bog gear is truly engineered for the unknown. To see their full lineup of products, you can check those guys out at boghunt.com. As of the day this episode launches, which should be Wednesday, May 3rd, uh, we're just one week away from NDA's second annual Giving Day. So please mark your calendars for next Wednesday, May 10th. Uh, As a 501c3 nonprofit, the NDA relies on memberships and donations from folks like yourself, along with our corporate partners. So this will be a really important day for us. Uh, incredibly, we've already had donors step up and agree to match all donations made next Wednesday, May 10th, dollar for dollar, up to $50,000. So we're really excited about our second annual giving day and hope you'll consider making a donation to help us ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Hey, one more thing before we jump on the phone here with Luke. Uh, we've had a couple new reviews roll in since I last read them on the podcast a, a few weeks ago. So I wanted to give a quick shout out for those. Uh, the first one is from Buck Ranch, Missouri. Uh, he says, great resource for deer hunting. And his review says, I've been listening to a few of your recent podcasts, and they are a great resource for anyone looking to improve their hunting strategies and knowledge on deer habitat management and improvements. Thanks and keep up the great work. Again, that was from Buck Ranch, Missouri, and we appreciate that uh, that review. And we had another one from Preps Nation. Uh, Preps Nation uh, says, enjoy the show and information. I really enjoy the information and detail covered in many of the episodes. Topics are easy to distinguish if you're interested in that episode. The guests and hosts do a great job of diving into the topic. Thank you for the good work. So again, thanks for that, Preps Nation. And hey, guys, thank all of you who've taken time to leave us a rating or a review If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, 
and you haven't already, please take just a second to hit that five-star rating and leave us a written review. Uh, We love hearing from you guys, and we'd love to read your review on an upcoming episode. So, guys, with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Luke McCauley to discuss forged soybeans. So, Luke, before we dive into kind of all things forged soybeans, can you tell us a little bit about what your job as an extension wildlife specialist entails? So I have, you know, as an extension specialist uh, on most university campuses, they give you a lot of leeway. And it's actually, I think, one of the best jobs uh, out there in academia. Um, It's you can... In academia, as a professor, you have a publisher parish paradigm, but you still have a lot of leeway as a professor to choose what you work on. And you have, but you have a lot of pressures for research and you teach and you have to publish. As an extension specialist, you still have the publishing pressures. You're expected to write, um, but the research can really be applied. It can be something that people care about on the ground. Whereas sometimes in the academic, as the, on the professor side of things, sometimes there's a little bit more profess, uh, a, a little bit more preference for doing something really cutting edge, really novel, uh, really pure research that might not be clearly very applicable right now. And it's so far ahead of things that it's not really a pro- problem solving kind of thing sometimes. So with extension, uh, you're really trying to solve problems for the public. Uh, for me, I'm working primarily with uh, all sorts of stakeholders in Maryland. I mean, traditionally, extension specialists work with private landowners, and they are probably the most important group of people I work with. But of course, you can't work with them without considering the Department of Natural Resources. I work a lot with them. Uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, work, work with some folks there, Dan Lawson, other universities. So as an extension specialist, you sort of develop this network of of colleagues in some ways you're like a um you're a connector and you also solve problems you do apply research to solve problems and get that out to the public so people can use that use that research Um, and i find extension for myself i define it as two things there's there's one in which i'm responding to problems that are coming my way so a lot of people call me and say i have this problem or I have uh, industry groups, say the soybean board. Uh, one of their top, one of the farmers' top issues is wildlife damage. So I get a lot of calls about wildlife damage. I get requests to talk about wildlife damage. Uh, wasn't something I really ever planned on working on, but as an extension specialist, a you know a public serving uh, a member of, of the government of the university system, I need to respond to what people are asking for. So I see there's this sort of response aspect. But there's also this other side, which I think is the real fun part is, is the leadership side. So sometimes there are other things that are happening out there that people don't realize are a problem or it's not well known that it's a problem. And so it's my role as an extension specialist to make sure people know about that, to educate people about, uh, for example, the problem of bobwhite quail undergoing really catastrophic declines across the country. Um, and and trying to galvanize energy around habitat restoration work to improve that species, not only that species, but a whole suite of species that would benefit from that early succession habitat, that grassland and shrubby habitat that that bird species like uh, and require. Uh, so 
So a uh, long-winded way to say, as an extension specialist, I, I respond to what people are asking me about and their requests. And I also uh, try to identify problems. I'm, I'm supposed to be, and I, I work to be an expert in my field. And uh, so I identify, I see things that maybe people who aren't, don't have time to do the research, they don't know about these things. So I can see things that could be a problem that nobody's talking about. And I need to do the education and research to to improve those problems as well. So, uh, and I, I work on uh, a pretty variety. I have a pretty interdisciplinary program. I would say I work on here in Maryland. Uh, I would say I work on crop damage issues, mostly for deer. And I would say it's, I'd say actually the category should be, I should describe it as I work on deer, deer issues, because we have a lot of damage issues, but we also have a lot of hunters who want to attract deer and manage deer. So there's this sort of two sides of the same coin uh, for deer management. So I work a lot on deer management. A big focal area of mine is early succession habitat that I just alluded to with uh, Bob White quail as kind of this um, keystone species. It's uh, a flagship kind of uh, species that a lot of people can get behind and know about. And then I do uh, a few other things, but another big part of what I work on and, and what I worked on in Berkeley was the sort of human dimension sides of things, the economics of wildlife management, the economics of land ownership, what's happening, uh, big picture questions about you know conservation and fragmentation of land. And, um, and so we're working on a big landowner survey here in Maryland to better understand how landowners think about wildlife management and interact with and what they're doing on their land to improve habitat or whether they're doing nothing and get a baseline understanding that will help guide us in future educational efforts. So that's uh, a lot of what I'm working on so far right now. Uh, keeps me real busy, but it's, it's been a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And it uh, sounds like uh, a lot of, a lot of variety in the work, which is always a good thing. So there is, there but, is. And, and sometimes I worry that I get a little bit too, uh, they say what a jack of all trades and master of none. And I kind of worry that I get a little bit too broad, but it does keep my keep my life interesting. And uh, I'm fortunate to have uh, built up uh, just in a few years. I've got some great undergraduate help. I've got four students that work for me right now. They've been great. I've got uh, a, a, a postdoc just came on board. So couldn't do it all without all their support and help, too. So, yeah. Well, we, we wanted to get you on here because you presented an interesting study that you've been working on. Uh, at the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting uh, around forage soybeans, and I'm guessing uh, you can you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm, I'm guessing that probably stemmed from some of what you were talking about there those those complaints and phone calls and and people uh, you know looking for ways to to mitigate um, crop damage. But can can you speak on that? How did this how did this uh, research come about? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually based, I'm with University of Maryland College Park, but I'm based at one of the research uh, stations, the research farms, we call it a REC, and ours are called Research and Education Centers. So I'm at the Y, and that's spelled W-Y-E, Research and Education Center. And um, it's a 400-acre research farm, and it just added another four or 500 acres. So it's now about 900 acres. We've got a, a cattle side called the Y Angus, and we've got the farm side where we do re agricultural research. <clears throat> so when I arrived out there, um, again, I was like coming from California and uh, grew up in Texas. So I'm like completely a fish out of water and um, just 
learning as much as I could from what people were doing already here. And the farmers there had, uh, the, the researchers had been experimenting with forage soybeans as a deterrent for crop damage, as a basically as a way to do a diversion buffer, or some people call them a biological fence, or some people are calling it a catch crop. You plant a crop and you catch all the deer in that, keep them there in that uh, spot of the field around the edges. So they had been uh, experimenting with that for, I think, a couple of years. And, uh, and I'll put in a plug right now for the Maryland Soybean Board and the Delaware Soybean Board. They've both been very generous in funding this work uh, before I came on and, and even today and continuing to fund it. And, um, but yeah, they had been trying this and I, I came in, I'd never even grown a soybean in my life. I, it's not a common crop in California and, uh, and where I grew up in Texas is too dry. They're not growing soybeans where I grew up in Texas. So, uh, so I basically, uh, said, well, let's, let's continue to, to see what's working. And I had farmers really speaking highly of it. And, um, so I said, let's, let's, uh, get some plants in the ground and use, use this research station and, and start, start learning. So, um, so we put in the first year, I think we put in four or five varieties of forage soybeans and, uh, we continued it in that, a second year. And now we're in our third year. We just planted a third year of, of crops of these. So we're, we're trying to get at questions about, um, uh, one, well, first off, does it work? Uh, and I can talk a little bit about that. Uh, but more particularly, do we see deer preferring certain varieties to others? Because some are, we have a lot of marketing for soybeans and forage soybeans as uh, deer preferring them. And so we want to see, well, does that show up in, in our data? And uh, want to see, okay, preference is one issue. Uh, are there forage soybeans that you can plant that uh, can can grow or outgrow the damage or grow after they've been grazed on and still produce a yield. Um, those kinds of questions, um, which we've really kind of think summed up through like biomass production, like how much plant material is being grown so that if a deer is eating, is it going to regrow to provide more food for those deer so they don't move into the prime agricultural areas, which are really in the middle of the field anyways. Um, and this is one of those things, again, I'm, I'm not an, agronomy student don't have that background but being out in the field you learn so much about in maryland we have lots of fields that are bordered by forest edges and i think crop damage is a real issue because you have these relatively small fields uh, broken up by patches of forest which provide great cover for the deer uh, to bed down in and then they can it's like they have their bedroom and they have the cafeteria all right there and there's like uh, and it's just like perfectly interspaced. So you can have like, uh, you know, 50 acre field, 50 acres of woods, 50 acres field. And so you have these, it just, it's all a perfect combination for high density deer populations that can do a lot of damage on the crop side. Um, so, so yeah, so the, and around the edges, what I was getting to on around the edges of the field, you have a lot of competition, uh, for resources in your crops, uh, from the trees, There's shading issues for one. But also the roots of those trees go underground, so 20, maybe 30, even further in, underneath the farm field, you have tree roots reaching out and will suck water from underneath those, uh, those plants in the crop field. And I wouldn't have really believed it until I saw it on a, we were in a dry area, it was some sandy soils on one of our research farms. 
and you could see 30 feet in, maybe a little bit farther even, the soybeans were wilted because of the competition of, for moisture that those trees' roots were drawing down underneath. Uh, and in the middle of the field, the soybeans looked about fine. So anyway, so using these field edges, they're, they're not as high production areas. So if you can get something in there to keep the deer in those edges, the deer want to be in the edges anyways because they want to be close to cover. Uh, and keep them there, then you can salvage uh, more of your sort of prime agricultural land in the center of the field and get better yields there. So, um, so that was a very uh, long-winded way to get at uh, sort of big-picture ideas of what this study was trying to get at. And uh, we're continuing to, to really nail down. We've learned a lot, but it's a very difficult thing to, to really measure uh, for two reasons. One is, uh, uh, and any wildlife researcher will tell you, and probably any hunter any hunter will tell you this for sure, is deer are highly variable and they're not very predictable. Have a very highly variable deer population. And then any agronomist will tell you uh, measuring and studying crops is highly variable because you have weather patterns that change, you have temperatures that change, you have soil nutrient contents that change. So there's, there's a lot of variables on both of these things that change, making it really hard to measure. But um, but I, I've we've gotten a pretty good sense um, of it, but it's it's a very challenging thing to thing to get statistically valid measures of its impact. Yeah, can you kind of walk us through the the study design as far as how you laid out these plots compared to the agricultural fields, and you know how big were the plots, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So that's been evolving, and again. It, I've gotten a, a bit of a education, a really great education on farm farm machinery and farm planting equipment. And our first year, we drilled uh, drilled in our soybeans in strips, and I believe we did twenty foot wide strips. And we put uh, we ran we did a, what's called a randomized complete block design, which is basically a a, a way to replicate your plots and and have them mixed up so you're not biasing your study based on where the plots are but um so we did this randomized strip plot and we replicated it three times so there'd be three separate strips of each variety and put cameras on them and and i i gotta thank my undergraduate assistants who have painstakingly and we put we mounted tro cameras on each strip and my undergraduate students uh, painstakingly went through and and uh, we only wanted to catch deer that were on that strip that were grazing on that strip and so they would actually like look at these photos and like see was a deer on the plot okay check and ignore it if it was off the plot because cameras were capturing you know deer when they were on the other plots so we had to like filter all that data um, so our second year we did strips again but we made them I think we did them uh, 30 feet wide instead of 20. So we had less of that problem of catching deer on the, on the trail cameras as they were on other plots to make it simpler to get through all these photos. Uh, and this year we're trying a new thing that I think is going to be our best, but uh, it's, it's a very iterative process to try to measure these things. But now we are using much more precise uh, planting uh, plot planting equipment. So I'm now working with uh, some great guys that work with Nicole Fiorellino, who's a professor in the plant sciences department. She has a whole a dedicated team of guys who do soybean variety trials for agricultural reasons. 
and Joe Crank and Lewis Thorne, they've been uh, helping me plant uh, these 10 by 20 plots that are now separated by uh, basically nothing. We're going to basically spray everything in between these plots. And now we have cameras only focused on this 10 by 20 plot and that are going to capture deer grazing on each of these different plots. Um, so every, and then, so we've got, that's how we're measuring deer activity and trying to get at whether deer are preferring certain types of forage soybeans to others, um, which is challenging, but I think we're going to hopefully get better at it this year because I, I think hopefully we'll, we'll see a little bit more preference because it, all of our plots are spaced out a lot more. So deer, basically I'm calling it the deer smorgasbord study. And that was, that was coined by Nicole, my colleague, my co-PI, Nicole. Um, and it's like a cafeteria out there with these little little squares across a big field. So the deer are going to be forced to kind of move and select uh, uh, what they want. So we'll see if we, we start seeing preferences this year. But so we measure deer activity with cameras and, and that's it's challenging, but I don't, there's a lot of different ways to try and get at it. That's the best way I'm working at right now. And I actually adapted that from uh, some work with cattle grazing in riparian zones out in California that uh, my my uh, former colleague Felix Ratcliffe did for his doctoral work. And he used cameras to detect cattle in riparian zones. And he says, this is the best way to do it because if you have cattle in a big field, they're only spending a few days in that riparian zone. So you don't, you want to actually use a measure of what the actual activity is on that spot. So that's how I've kind of thought about using these cameras to, to quantify activity. Um, so we've got, that's, that's an aspect for the deer. Um, we're also looking at um, biomass and seeing uh, we have exclosures out where we will clip biomass inside and outside of the exclosures. Um, and last year we did a lot of forage analysis to see whether there were differences in the, the forage components. Is, is there more protein or is there more sugars or other aspects? that could be driving some of the deer grazing behavior. So um, that pretty much sums up a lot of our methods, but we've sort of trying a lot of different things to, to tackle this highly variable situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really cool. A lot of, a lot of stuff to, to unpack there. Um, man, what was, I had one thing, something. One thing I could add, I'm, yeah. I'll add one more thing because after our first year, it was, again, very challenging to notice it. We started to basically ask farmers. We give a, a soybean giveaway and ask farmers to try it and then fill out a survey afterwards and see whether they thought it worked, which is a whole other way of getting, getting at, uh, at the data. Just seeing, you know, anecdotally, these farmers really know their fields. They know what they produce. Um, and, they, and, and that's one of the reasons why I added that is because I have farmers that tell me, they're like, look, Luke, this is one of those studies that's going to be maybe impossible to truly measure and give me a 100% sure answer on. But I can tell you, I'm as big a penny pincher as anybody, and I would do this again next year, hands down. So when I hear stuff like that from farmers, uh, I think, okay, there's there's probably something here. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So were, were these strips, just I'm trying to envision this in my head, these, these 20 and, and, and 30 foot strips, did they completely um, wrap around these these production fields, or was it just you know maybe on one side of the field? Or I so we actually we've uh, the the farm managers love to give the wildlife guys, uh, of course, the most marginal. Well, 
oftentimes some of the marginal ground or the places, of course, where there's a ton of deer damage. So I've got the field. I've got this. It's like Luke's field in the back that's surrounded on three sides by trees. And it always gets hammered by deer, which is exactly what I need to do my research. So um, so we haven't actually well, we've been setting. We've let the farmers try the buffers. We've been trying to just get a better handle on preference. And so we actually planted the whole field in strips. We weren't actually testing the buffer yet on this, but again, because of all those sort of variability challenges, we were just looking, okay, we're going to plant this whole field with strips and see if we start seeing um, preferences and biomass differences and all these other aspects. So that's what we've actually, uh, we're really focused on the actual varieties and seeing how they perform. And then after that, then we can kind of make recommendations for the buffers um, and the types of species that might work well in the buffers. Okay. Varieties. Gotcha. And yeah. and you guys were were monitoring some weather factors as well, weren't you? Or, or maybe it was just anecdotal, but I think you reported on, you know, on some some weather factors involved and in, in when the deer were using these plots. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually, a I think they call it a post hoc analysis, which is a fancy way of saying you know, after we had gathered all our data, um, uh, I saw some very interesting patterns in the deer grazing activity in our fields. And and uh, maybe not super interesting, but we saw this really, uh, this like these spikes of grazing activity that were happening every 10, 15 days or so. We'd have these like days in which the deer would come in and just be there a lot. And I was I was presenting this data and I showed this chart. And you probably saw it at the at the conference, but there about half, I was thinking it was about 46% of the grazing happened in like five nights on these nights when they just came in and spent a lot of time in the fields. And I was presenting this at the at a farmers uh, at the Talbot Corn Club to a bunch of farmers. And this is why extension is great and, and goes back to that first thing I was telling you about with like is this sort of leadership aspect and this response aspect. So I, I present my research. And I get all these ideas from farmers when they ask me questions. So one person, and it's, it's so obvious, but I wasn't even thinking about it, you know, and some, some one of the farmers says, well, what's driving those spikes? I was like, that's a really good question. Let's go check out the weather data. Then maybe there's something happening with the weather. So uh, I had a student, uh, Jackie Quinones, I, I asked her to kind of dive into that and do some analysis. And before we even did the statistics, I pull up the rainfall data. And I was saying, okay, here's a spike on, I think it was like July 1st, we had like a spike of, of grazing activity. And I said, um, well, let's go see what, what the weather was going on in, around July 1st. And we go and like about three days earlier, there'd been like an inch and a half, about an inch of rain. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. Then we moved on up to like July 10th, but there was another big spike. And we go through there and like on July 7th, like again, two days before the rain, one or two days before there was another inch of rain and then there was another spike <laughs> and it was the same pattern. It was like rain was happening uh, over the course of two or three days right before that spike. I was like, gosh, this looks like rain could be driving this sort of activity. So we've um, we went through afterwards that held up pretty strongly statistically in 2021. It held up again in 2022. It wasn't as clear from looking at the data, but on the statistical analysis, it looks like it's uh, again holding were between 38 to 50 hours after we had our rainstorms, we'd have these spikes of grazing. Um, so 
that was pretty interesting to me. And I think one of these sort of side side things you discover in a project that could be actually as useful as the project, as the you know research questions themselves is like, if we can understand more about the timing of deer grazing, then we can target interventions around, uh, around timing that way. So, uh, but yeah, it seems like, uh, and we'll see again, we're going to have a third year of data here. I'd be very curious to see if it holds. Uh, and actually all those deer researchers out there listening now, I think it'd be really interesting if you have GPS collar data on deer, you could really get at this to even at a better, finer scale to see how well this holds. But it, it seems as though um, my original thinking was that after a rainfall, the plants soak up all the water. They've got high water content in their leaves. They're more palatable. You know, when you see a plant right after you water a plant, you see it just like comes to life again. And so I was like, maybe they're just, those deer are just keying in on those plants that they're not wilty. They're just like full of water and happy. And that's, that's good eating. Uh, I heard another uh, idea from a farmer just a couple of weeks ago who was talking about irrigation. And apparently when plants are irrigated, they kind of shut down. And so if you irrigate plants uh, too much, he was, he was actually speaking towards the importance of like not overwatering and doing like small amounts of water consistently for soybeans and other crops. Um, but if you put a lot of water down, then the plant shuts down. But then about a day, two days later, springs back to life with all this new growth. And so there could be not only the water, sort of water content and the leaves, but also new growth, like just coming off, like new buds coming off these plants that the deer are also keying in on. Because a, a lot of the research is showing that that new growth is is the most palatable stuff uh, for deer to be eaten on. So um, that's that's some of the interesting things we found with weather. I also, I didn't present this at the conference, but we also had, as most hunters uh, and listeners would expect, we had a negative effect of wind. So if wind was high, the deer were not out in the field as much. They want to be bunkered, uh, you know, bedded down somewhere else. So we did see a statistical effect on wind um, as well. So. Yeah, that boy, that is super interesting stuff. Especially should be to uh, to the deer hunters out there listening. And uh, unfortunately, I don't I don't have a lot of soybeans around me here where I'm at to to test that this this fall. But uh, if I did, I would certainly be out there. Uh, you know, two days after rain events to yeah. To and see it's, what's well, it's also there. tough because you know soybeans are grown in the summer, so all of our stuff's in the summer, and so it's like for farmers who have crop damage permits and things like that that can work for them or they want to put out repellents or they even want to put out maybe a temporary electric fence or, or other things that they can do. But uh, yeah, this stuff's all happening outside of the hunting season for most people, but around you still might, if you're in August, September, you still might be able to see some of those effects. Although most of those soybeans are starting to, to kind of go into their senescent stage and, and, and dying down. But, um, but this will speak to, um, the varieties you might want to choose for soybeans for your listeners, um, because uh, there's something with soybeans, and I didn't know all this when I got started, but there's something called maturity groups of soybeans. So if you're not very familiar with soybeans, uh, a lower maturity group means uh, is a type of soybean they'll use further up north, and they basically grow and mature much quicker. So up here, farmers will use a group three or four, and sometimes group five even. And they grow and they senesce, the leaves turn yellow, the leaves fall off, and the soybeans dry up on the pods, and then they harvest. Um, now, down south, 
a lot of farmers they'll use a later maturing varieties and that's like a, say a group group five six or even group seven soybeans they grow over a longer period of time before they lose their leaves um, so those later maturing groups are going to keep more green leaves on their plants later into the season so we had uh, like our group three soybeans that we did as a control lost their leaves, I want to say around the end of August. Uh, whereas our group sevens had leaves on into the end of September. So you've got a whole, you know, extra month of green foliage on, on the plants for these later maturing varieties. And they're also you know, still growing a bit more in those later seasons. So if you're going to be planting for hunting season and uh, you want to get I'd probably get something that's a later, as late maturing variety as you can. Um, so those, that forage stays on while hunting season comes in. And can, can you speak to what varieties you guys tested? Yeah, we did. We Google, we searched around and primarily got things that were uh, Roundup tolerant because in a, in a practical setting for agricultural farmers, oh my gosh, I'm looking out my window. There's a turkey walking by right now. <laughs> You can't. There's a wild turkey walking through my back here. He's a, a Jake. He's got a small little beard. Oh man! Uh, and turkey season's open, uh, so and I've been too busy to get out. So, anyways, uh, where were we? The varieties that we were uh, planting. Yeah, so yep. we did Roundup ready varieties because that's really a practical thing for farmers to be able to use. They need to be able to um, control uh, control weeds. In their system. So Roundup Ready means you can spray Roundup over the top of them and it'll kill everything underneath without killing the soybean plant. So we did, um, we had varieties from uh, Eagle Seed, which is what they were primarily working with when I came in. Um, and they have a few varieties. We use their variety. It's called Big Fellow. It's a group seven forage soybean. So again, it's one of those ones that'll stay green really long. Uh, we did uh, Biologic uh, works with a company called Stratton Seed to grow, uh, to produce forage soybeans. So Biologic had two varieties of game changers. One was a group five and one was a group six. Um, both of those worked pretty well. And we got something out of the cross seed called a, a Briar Ridge. It's called GT1. It was a group four. Um, and I think those were our main varieties. And then we did a couple of conventional varieties to see how they would compare to these forage varieties. So we had a variety of groups of, of soybeans and different types of varieties as well, just different brands. Um, and yeah, I could speak to, you know, some of the differences between them and, and stuff if you'd like, or I'll. Yeah. Yeah. I guess from here, uh, let's just you know, you can start speaking to really some of some of the results that you've seen from all this and, and how that played out with the different varieties. So. Yeah. So um, it seems so in terms of deer preference, which is one of those big questions is like, do deer prefer like forage soybeans more than our conventional soybeans? It's uh, we've not yet been able to see like, again, it's deer are so variable and the way our plots were set up with strips we'd have deer kind of walking through all of our strips so it was really challenging to i don't feel like we could really detect much preference because there were soybeans everywhere um, i'm hoping this year where we have them all blocked up we'll be able to detect differences better this coming year potentially but my intuition is that 
a deer is going to eat a soybean mostly based on where it is. So they like soybeans. It can be any kind of soybean, but if it's on the field edge, they're going to go for that first. Even if it's not like their favorite forage forage variety with higher sugar content, they're going to eat a, a conventional bean if it's on the field edge, just because they prefer to be on that field edge and they're going to come out and start grazing immediately. So a spatial aspect of deer behavior is probably most, is kind of at this point, I would say overrides um, the preference from what I see. That might change in our next year with our study improvements, but um, that's kind of my intuition right now is that deer like all soybeans. Um, but I think uh, there were, there, I think some of the best benefits are biomass production. And so we did have um, differences in biomass production. The forage soybeans produced more you know, leaf matter um, every year. So me, and I actually ran some, some new studies and I will say that the Eagle Seed uh, Big Fellow, which was only one of many varieties that they sell, produced the most biomass um, from all the other types that we tested. Um, so that was, that's a nice thing to see because obviously if you want to have deer coming in to hunt, you want to have a lot of green forage available and, and they can, if they're producing more then they can kind of handle more grazing pressure. So, um, so the, the big fellow Eagle seeds group seven, they're, they're a great, great variety to use. They're, they're late maturing. And so they're going to stay green long and they produce a lot of biomass. Now, if you're looking for yield, if you're a farmer and you're looking for yield, they're the lowest yielding variety that we have of all of our soybeans. They're putting all their energy into leaf, leaf matter and growing. So, um, the, uh, the biologic, both the biologics did pretty well. They came in, um, a little bit less uh, biomass than the, uh, than the big fellows. Again, there's a lot of variation, but last year they came in a little bit less, but they're still, um, good options. And, uh, the Briar Ridge GT1, again, that was, that's something that maybe a farmer might like more. It's a group four, four and a half. 4.5. It produced pretty good. It actually produced um, pretty good yields that would be maybe even uh, pretty comparable to conventional soybeans. So, um, but it also produces a pretty good amount of, of biomass too. So, um, we're going to try a couple. We're trying a few more varieties from um, from Eagle Seed this year as well, and so we'll have some more more results to report back. Um, in terms of the like forage analysis. And this is another thing that I was uh, interested in. And this kind of fits with that aspect of like our deer preferring certain varieties over others. I felt that uh, our forage analysis isn't showing huge differences between the varieties. Like we looked at sugars, we looked at protein. There are small differences, I would say on the order of maybe 10% differences between the highest sugar content to the lowest. Again, I will say that the big fellow, the Eagle Seed big fellow did have slightly higher, not statistically significant levels based on our work, but they did have slightly higher levels of sugars. Again, I'm not sure if that's so much driving it as much as biomass production and placement of those soybeans where they are. Um, but it doesn't hurt to have more sugars in your, in your soybeans if you're trying to attract uh, grazing animals. So um, I'm trying to think what else to... As far as crude protein, pretty similar across yeah, the board. Yeah, the crude protein, let me pull up my... Okay, so sugars are measured by water-soluble carbohydrates. There's two ways you can measure sugars, but that's one of the easiest ones. Um, 
One thing that was interesting, we cut uh, forage samples at four times to the growing season. So every every two weeks or so, we go in and cut and sample. Now we saw the the sugar content went up uh, up until August. It, so in basically July first, uh, it was lowest when they were new, and end of July, August first, they were increased quite a bit. Mid August, it went up even higher, and then by September 7th, they were all declining back down. Um, let's see our crude protein data. Actually, it shows that our conventional group five soybeans had slightly higher crude protein amounts and the eagle seed big fellows were lower in crude protein. And I think that's kind of, I always think crude protein is, is one of the most important things and something that deer are keying in on. Again, you have like these mixed factors where you have increased sugars, slightly increased sugars of the big fellows, but they have slightly lower crude protein levels. And when you look at the noise and the sort of changes in the data, and honestly, there are probably these levels of differences, like the 10% difference level within a plant, you could have that kind of difference from a fresh leaf that just came out and a leaf at the bottom of the plant that's old. So you probably have even maybe even bigger differences there than you would between some of our, our different varieties. So, um, but again, I, I think some people, uh, uh, my colleague, James Dedeker out in Michigan State, he he thinks they're seeing sugar as being a pretty big driver. Um, my data is not showing a huge impact and not statistically different. Again, there is slightly group sugars and, but then you have less, you know, you have less, uh, slightly less crude protein. So uh, I, it kind of gets back to my, my hypothesis is that, is that biomass is probably the biggest thing for this is that you have a lot of material for the deer to be able to eat. And especially new growing material, I think is also, something they're keying in on. Yeah. Did so did you see any increased use as those sugar levels peaked or was it pretty Oh, um I would say like those spikes um drive it more like those the spikes in deer grazing activity that would happen every 10 days that seemed to correlate with that rainfall uh would totally swamp any effect of the like changes of sugar. I mean, you have these slight increases, but I, I think there are other things that are, that are really driving it more than that. So. Okay. Gotcha. Now, one thing that for hunters that I think would be a really cool study and maybe for a future year is seeing whether this pattern holds for our cool season, uh, food plots, like things that you might be planting, like winter pea or clover or winter wheat and things like that. I think that would be a, another really good tool for the hunter's toolbox, like later in the season to see whether you can start seeing uh, deer preferences or deer behavior changes around, around the weather events like that too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As, as far as what about browsing pressure, did, did the varieties seem to hold up equally, equally well to, to browsing pressure? They, so this is interesting. I ran some stats last night and because I was, we, we did a simulated grazing study last year where one of my undergraduates, uh, Evan Griffiths, and my, my assistant, uh, Taylor Robinson, uh, they and myself, we would go out and pretend we were a deer and we would clip off. We had two levels of, of treatments where we would pretend like we were a deer and eat two-thirds of the plant and put it in bags and weigh the biomass. And then we'd have another section where we would 
you know, sort of simulate grazing on by eating down about one third of the plant. Um, the, the really interesting takeaway on this is, of course, like the first week we did that, of course, we had more biomass from the plants that we took two thirds of the leaves from. Uh, after two weeks, um, our, the plants, of course, grew up quite a bit, but they grew up so much more on the ones that we only took off one third of the plant. They like the plants were growing so much faster that the biomass uh, that we were taking off in every future week that we took off that one third, the plants had grown so much bigger that their biomass, even though we were only taking one third of the plant, outweighed the stuff that we were taking off the plants that we were doing two thirds amount of grazing on. Uh, so that might sound a little complicated, but basically, like if, if you take too much off a soybean plant, it will never really be able to recover. It will never be able to produce as much for, forage as a plant that's lightly grazed. And those lightly grazed plants can almost outrun the deer grazing pressure. So if you can protect them in the, those first few weeks where the plant starts to get a few different, uh, certain level of biomass, you can, can get them past that stage and the plants can really explode and there'll be more forage available than the deer can consume. So I think that's maybe an interesting takeaway for, for some people planting food plots. You know, some of your, if you can protect your plants early on, that would probably be a good way to improve your total biomass production uh, by just even by two or three weeks uh, when they're young. Uh, because you have that effect that I just described, like after, when you take off two thirds of the plant, just never can really quite catch up. Even if you're taking two thirds the next week, that amount won't even match what the plants that are only getting one third. Uh, you, you just get more weight off the one third grazed plants just because they've grown that much more. Um, and another thing I'll say is it, uh, that also goes to protection early on of your soybeans is that if a deer comes through, when your soybeans are coming up, if a deer comes through and they can just graze the tops off all these seedlings, if they graze below the cotyledon, and if you remember, like you're back to like, you know, your, your like elementary, like bean growing experiments, <laughs> those first two leaves that come up when the, when the leaf, when the plant comes up, if they graze below those first two leaves, the plant is completely dead. If they grow graze a trifoliate right above that cotyledon, it's amazing. Those soybeans can still regrow and still put out more more plants. So, but there's they're very vulnerable at that very first like week or two stage. So uh, you can have a lot of failure and like complete plant death just and the and the deer is getting you know you're talking like a tiny little seedling leaf. So they're not getting much forage off it, but they kill the whole plant. Um, so if you can kind of protect those plants until they got a few trifoliate leaves on them, uh, that'll do a lot to basically allowing those soybeans a chance to basically outgrow the deer grazing pressure. Um, another another thing I would think about if I was uh, working on on planting soybeans for food plots. Yeah, uh, you're probably not going to be able to answer this. It's more, I guess, asking you to speculate, but because it's going to vary, I know based on on deer density in in any any given location. But from just what you've seen there, your experience working on these plots, is there a minimum acreage of these soybeans that that you could plant that would survive that browsing pressure? I mean, it, w would you tell somebody that's planting a food plot, you know, if if you plant under X amount of acres, it, they're probably going to destroy it? Uh, yeah, to, to answer that, it would be probably more important to say, well, what's your deer density? If you have like 
idea densities. Um, like, so let's see our, let's say our farm in Maryland, pretty high deer densities. We do have, we have a hunting program there to maintain the deer densities down a little bit lower, but they're still pretty high. Um, we have a small field and I would say, okay, there's, there's a few things, deer density, and then what's surrounding that field. Like if you're completely surrounded by woods and a lot of cover, uh, that also makes it even harder. If you're in a much more open area uh, with other stuff around, then that's not as much an issue. But I, I would think a lot of your uh, people put in food plots are relatively small acreages, and I'm guessing they're probably surrounded by woods or some sort of cover. In that case, uh, unless you have very low deer densities, I would say, yeah, if you're less than, if I, if I just anecdotally or just off the cuff or just to say some stuff, like I would say if you're under three acres, you're going to have a hard time uh, keeping those soybeans alive. We did that. We have a very small two and a half acre field that I wanted to really get intense grazing on. Um, and they pretty much destroyed it. There was, uh, it was actually amazing how they do survive, but they just look really bad. You get increased weed pressure, uh, once they, once it gets thinned out that badly. So I would say that was like a two, two and a half acre little plot surrounded by woods. Um, so it was very concealed and they pretty much wiped it out. Now we have a field that's our, where our main studies at, I think it's about six acres. And surrounded on three sides by woods, not four. Um, and it, you know, the edges of it got pretty hammered pretty bad, but it's it's a much wider field, and it's just yeah, they can outgrow the, the soybeans can outgrow the deer. So um so I would say, yeah, that's kind of and like I would guess say maybe a moderate deer density scenario. Uh you might want to get up above maybe five acres as a rule of thumb, or think about I think temporary electric fencing could do a lot if you have the time and you're going to put it and put in some time on it. Uh, putting up uh, some poly tape electric fencing is not too expensive. Um, and you can do even one strand. You bait it with molasses to basically train deer on the electric fence. That's an important part. And so you attract the deer to the electric tape. They get they lick it and they get zapped and then they know to stay away from it. So you could put that up um, around a you know, two and a half acre uh, plot and protect it for two or three weeks. And then I think you might have a much better shot at um, keeping your crop, uh, keeping your food plot going. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually done that with, with cowpeas here in Georgia on a small plot, just put a uh, Gallagher style electric fence around it and uh, it worked, worked pretty well until I dropped the fence and then they, you know, it didn't take them long to wipe out my little half acre plot or so, but but uh, yeah, I did at least get it established and kept it safe until uh, you know deer season came in. So yeah, but yeah, that that's good. I I knew it'd be hard to to give a any kind of firm answer on that, but uh, it was more for you know I know there's a lot of guys out there that are planting you know half acre to maybe one acre food plots, and um, you know for in most instances I guess for for that situation soybeans is is probably not going to be a, a good option for you. Yeah, they'll probably get pretty hammered down. I mean, the the deer will enjoy it while they got it. Um, but yeah, maybe something that can handle, maybe something that's not as preferred and that can it's a little bit weedier that can handle that kind of uh, intensity. I've you know I like white clover uh, because it's real simple. It's perennial. Um, I've got a colleague who uses red clover, another perennial, um, and I like the simplicity of that, not having to go back every year, and and they can. They do pretty well. I've not seen 
that kind of get grazed out in the same way. My my clover is doing fine, whereas my soybeans, yeah, they're just too too big and too succulent. They just get just get destroyed. So yeah, yeah. Any any other I guess factors or, or traits of these different soybean varieties that that provided an advantage over the others as far as I don't know maybe did maybe one germinated and grew faster or or persisted longer than the others I would say and I mentioned it already I think we've I think the the group the variety they call it the maturity group is the probably the biggest thing you want to look at um some part of me wonders whether there's we again the forage varieties put out more biomass but I wonder how well, if you could get away, some of the forage varieties cost a hundred bucks a bag, which if you're just doing an acre or two, not such a big deal. But if you're doing bigger areas, um, you know, the farmers look at that and think, gosh, it's expensive. I can get conventional beans for half that price. So if you're doing bigger areas or you're on a budget, you know, I think your conventional beans, you could get a late variety, a late maturity group variety that's conventional for half the price, probably do pretty good for you. Probably, I don't know if it probably put out as much biomass, but it'd probably do about as good and still be super palatable for deer. They're going to come and come and tear it up for sure. <laughs> and the late variety is good just because if they can survive into the later seasons, they're going to still be producing green forage um, later on into the season. Yeah. Any, any benefit at all in planting a mix with the different, you know, early and, and late uh persisting varieties or, or are you just better off just to pick one and stick with it? You know, I think if you wanted to have more beans for like, now this is a, this is something we haven't talked about yet is if you want to have beans on the pods in the winter. And I know a lot of farmers really like to hunt these buffer strips. One of the benefits of the farmers is that they can then hunt the, but they leave the buffers unharvested but they're putting pods and beans on the ground and they shatter or they, the deer finally come around to them in like December, January. And so that's another period of time where obviously all the, all the forage value is gone, but the beans are there or the leaf forage, I should say, but there's all these beans there that will attract deer. So, you know, you could have a, just a conventional bean that produces a lot more beans and a lot more higher yield. And that could be something you might want, especially if you're targeting using your soybean plots as like a December, January, like food plot for like actual soybeans on the ground or out of the pods. So uh, in that case, I would think, yeah, get some, get a maturity group that fits uh, your region because they're going to produce the highest yields um, based on that. And if you're further north, an earlier group. And further south, you're later. But just talk to a farmer and see what group they're selling at the farm store and get that group variety. And that's going to perform well. Basically, if you're further north, if you get a frost before the soybean pods have matured, then that really, uh, it kind of, uh, it reduces the uh, maturity of the, it prevents the maturity of that pod. And it basically significantly impacts your yields. So uh, if you get an early freeze and you're planting a group seven, uh, up here, you're gonna you're gonna have reduced yields there. So uh, if you want, uh, that's that's the factor in which you might want to do a mix or think about conventional beans if you want to really looking at this as a like uh, feeding deer with the soybeans themselves rather than the leaves. Okay, yeah, that's good. And stuff. other mixes in terms of mixes with other species, I've not done that work. 
but I think that could also help help some things out. And maybe if you had some other forages there that would sort of distract the deer from from the soybeans, you might get away with uh, some more survival. Yeah. Now I, I saw on on Twitter recently where it looked like you're working on some other food plot stuff now, and I guess uh, along. The, this part of the same project, but it looked like maybe you're you're testing some some other species out now. Is that yeah? Is that yeah, we started a little bit of that last year and ran into some herbicide issues because when you're dealing with Roundup Ready soybeans, that makes your herbicide system a lot easier. But if you're dealing with um, a lot of like iron clay cowpeas, American Joint Veg, and Lab Lab. They're not, they don't make Roundup Ready varieties as far as I'm aware of at this point. So you've got to kind of be a little bit more nuanced with your herbicide selection. And I heard your podcast uh, a few weeks ago with, uh, I think it's Mark Turner, great podcast. And he gives you all the information on how to, the herbicides you can use to deal with that. And I actually talked to him in advance of planting these this year. Um, he gave me some good tips. But um, so... Yeah, we're trying American Joint Fetch, Iron Clay Cowpeas, and Lab Lab as well. And I, uh, I'm actually really interested in the Lab Lab because it stayed green so long, uh, much later than even our latest maturity uh, soybean. It was in the field, and I think it was green until October, maybe even early November, I want to say. Um, and so that could be a nice thing to have in your food plot if you're hunting on it. Um, in October time, when you'd have you'd still be able to have green leaves on your plants to hunt on, and it might be attracting deer in. I haven't seen it yet; I haven't studied it, but I think that's that's why I wanted to put in some of the other things. Uh, plus, uh, you know, these things might work work well in different ways. So this could also still address these farmer damage issues. Like maybe American Joint Vetch can handle the the grazing a little bit better in certain ways, and still keep the deer on the field edge. So I want to try a few different few different things um since we really the goal is to attract deer and keep them somewhere uh, i thought i'd try all those sort of summer food plot species to see uh what we could keep keep deer in there with uh, and we included alfalfa and i'm sure alfalfa will will be a preferred candidate as well yeah yeah i'll definitely definitely be looking forward to, to seeing the results of that and uh yeah we might have to have to get you back on here if you're willing once you've wrapped up all that and uh see what see what kind of results you get absolutely love to come back out and uh yeah hopefully we get uh can start confirming some of these things and uh get more answers about uh about things for people to plant to track deer or to uh reduce their damage from deer in, in their garden or their farm and i i just want to make sure i thank uh again i said it earlier but the maryland soybean board has been super in funding this for the last three years delaware soybean board also came on board with that uh, last year and super grateful for their funding and support and all the people i've got several co-pis uh, nicole fiorellino jim lewis and uh, my admin taylor robinson and a few students especially evan griffiths who's been out in the field picking soybean leaves off pretending <laughs> to be deer. a lot of, a lot of work and doing that in the field when it's 90 degrees out so i uh, really appreciate all their help um, in this process well, good deal, Luke. I appreciate you taking time out to come on the show. Uh, for those interested in kind of keeping up with your research, is there a, a, a good place online for them to do that? Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've gotten on Twitter recently. I've 
finally succumbed and uh, <laughs> I met, uh, I actually got this handle from a, a friend of mine in California. He, he said, why don't you do a uh, Luke range Walker? I was like, what should my handle be? He's like, <laughs> like sitting there thinking, he's like, uh, he's like Luke Skywalker. He's like, how about, and I worked in range and range management. He's like, how about Luke range Walker? So I'm, I'm, uh, my handle is at Luke range Walker, uh, on Twitter. We also have a YouTube channel. We're building up. We hold a monthly, uh, wildlife Wednesday webinar and we try to get speakers from all around the country to come out. We've had, we've had, uh, Kip Adams out speaking last year and yeah. people like Craig Harper and others, um, speaking. So check out our, uh, YouTube channel. You just look up Maryland wildlife management and we've got a, got a YouTube channel, subscribe to us there too. It'd be great to, to build that channel so we can continue to provide educational content just like you guys are doing. I've, I've always learned a lot from y'all's uh, blogs. I, I get your I get your newsletter. It's great. I learn about how to write from Lindsey Thomas. <laughs> he does a great job, like uh, really, really like attracting my eyes into the into the material that he's presenting. So uh, really, I've learned a lot from y'all's website. And uh, honestly, that's how I learn a lot about my food plot stuff. I I think I go all I go to your websites. I'm like, what's which one was it? Should I do Lab Lab or Joint Veg? And so I always go read y'all's articles. It's been great to. Uh, to have that resource available too. Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate that. And I'll definitely include uh, a link in the show notes to, to your, your Twitter account, as well as the, uh, the YouTube channel. So, yeah. So folks can check that out and get subscribed to you guys. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot. And I know our, our listeners are going to enjoy this one as well. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Luke McCauley. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.